Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Linda Bailey Walsh. So we're just on the side of the road, drunk, because it's the 80s. All right, fine, now you know. It's the 80s. (laughs) That and more. But before that, you guys know Zappos.com, right? Zappos is a perfect place to go for your clothes, your shoes, your accessories, your bags. Now you can join Zappos Rewards, Zappos.com's brand new loyalty program. Existing customers will get $15 in Zappos Rewards just for enrolling. Sign up today at Zappos.com slash rewards and get free expedited shipping points for rewards, and early access to sales. Join now at zappos.com slash rewards. Also, here's something really special. You guys know our episode editor is Jeff Barr, right? Well, before he was custom crafting every Risk episode for the past six years, Jeff created the most unpredictable party game. It's called Dumb Luck. It's a home gambling game where players race to the finish line playing over 30 different single-player and multiplayer side games along the way. Players can play for fun or cash. The game is set up to play using real money to make things more interesting. The game itself comes in a beautiful-looking poker chip case with 300 high-quality poker chips, playing cards, dice, and more. You can see all the details at dumbluckgame.com. And as a special Christmas bonus, Risk fans can get this game with free domestic shipping by clicking on the secret link at the bottom of the Dumb Luck order page. Just go to dumbluckgame.com, click on the Order Now tab at the top, and then click on the Dumb Luck photo at the bottom of the page to get free shipping. Every game is a unique experience, and anything can happen in Dumb Luck, the ultimate gambling party game at dumbluckgame.com. Now here's the show. kids this is risk the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share i'm kevin allison this is winton marsalis behind me now and we are calling this week's episode hope hope my friends this is going to be three stories about people who found themselves in really really trying circumstances but who did not give up I am so (laughs) consistently inspired by stories like these, and I'm so consistently honored that people bring them to us. So this is going to be an episode with excitement and horror and grace. Now, at the beginning of last week's episode, it was a very emotional monologue at the beginning of last week's episode about how, you know, we consider Risk a real community where we celebrate 
and support people of different walks of life. And I said that, you know, in the future, every now and then, I'd like to, like, give a shout out to ways that you can get active and support people in your community, your fellow Americans. Ways that we at risk are hoping to do good for others, and maybe you could too. Here's one coming up. January 21st, the Women's March on Washington. Look it up on Facebook. Women's March on Washington, January 21st. You don't have to be a woman (laughs) to go. I'm sure most of us at risk are going to be there. Marching for women's rights, women's health, women's well-being. Another organization I've been really excited to find out about is Surge, S-U-R-J, at showingupforracialjustice.org. Surge is a national network of groups organizing white people to stand up for racial justice. They literally teach people how to be active in their communities in a positive, productive way. So that's showingupforracialjustice.org. And just one little announcement for our community here at risk. We are looking for holiday stories right now. Christmas stories, Hanukkah stories, Kwanzaa, New Year's, whatever it might be, those winter holidays, send us your stories at risk-show.com slash submissions. Now, I am about to do something I have never done in my life before. I'm about to go away on a Vipassana retreat. For 12 whole days, I will be completely off the map. No phone, no internet, no books, no pens, no pencils. And for 10 of those 12 days, total silence and meditation. I'm I'm new to meditation and I don't think I've ever spent a day in total silence, but I'm about to go very 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 much into the silence. So we've pre-recorded several episodes here and if you're trying to reach me during the next couple of weeks be aware i'll be gone when i'm back i'll either no longer have my mind (laughs) or i'll be completely enlightened or something else i can't currently even conceive of We shall see, but if you need me from November 23rd to December 4th, forget about it. I'll be off the grid. Now then, I'd like to start with a story that was told at the Risk Live show in Los Angeles. We do it once a month at the Bootleg Theater there. This is actress, comedian, storyteller Linda Bailey Walsh with a story we call Breaking Away. like a really small town so I never in my wildest dreams could have dreamt up a place like here and a room like this with these people like the town I come from still doesn't have a Starbucks but yeah so the theme of the show is passion and I've always had passion I out of the womb passion 
But again, I was in this super small town, and I just could not wait to get my life started, you know, start my career and be an actress and all that kind of stuff. And it was all just going to be like fame to me, you know, just like the movie fame. You know, it was just going to be great, and it's just dance bags and, you know, yelling at my teachers and Ann Mirror, and it was going to be great. And I went to college, and it was. It was just like that. It was amazing. Like, my days were just rehearsals and classes and this and that, and it was fantastic. I had this roommate, and she was just larger than life. Her name was Lexi. And she was beautiful, and she was a singer, and she was like this really wild, quirky, larger-than-life personality. Like, to give you an example, when we wanted to get alcohol, because, you know, you'd have to be 21, we'd go to liquor stores, and she'd do this thing where she'd just pretend she knew the owner. And so she'd just walk in, and she'd be like, oh, my God, how are you? And he'd be so embarrassed, and she'd be like, how is your mother? How's your mother? Is she okay now? And the guy's be like, yes. And she'd be like, great. Can I have four bottles of wine and some vodka? And we'd be like, yes, thank you. So she was fun, is the point of my story. We had a lot of good times together. So where I went to college was right outside of New York City. It was like 12 miles outside of New York City. So this first year at Christmas time, everybody was going into New York to see the Christmas tree lighting at Rockefeller Center. So we said, oh, we'll meet you there, because we had a rehearsal. We were very busy. So we said, we'll meet everybody in there. And if any of you have ever been to this, there's about 500,000 to a million people go to the Christmas tree lighting. Like, there's no catching up with your friends later there. Um, and this was also like pre-cell phone. Don't try to figure out how old I am. Just be cool about it. Um, but yeah, so it's pre-cell phone. So we couldn't call anybody and say like, we're late. So we got there late. We missed everybody. But we went out on the town and we were like 18 years old and we went around Times Square and we went to all these different places and we drank and we visited all the theaters and we talked about how amazing our life was going to be and we like went to Madame Wu's we just had the greatest time and then we were driving back to New Jersey and we're in the car and we we're just like talking about our projects we were like talking about like this big like Carol King musical we were going to write and I was going to act and she was going to sing and all these things then all of a sudden we just heard you know like ba-bump ba-bump so I was like it's pretty clear there was a flat tire and I said to her do you hear that and her reply was to just raise the volume on the radio. <laughs> and then we drove a little while longer and the car was just finally, you know, kicking it. So we pulled over. So we're just on the side of the road, drunk, because it's the 80s. All right, fine, now you know. It's the 80s. <laughs> it's the 80s and we're dr- people drove drunk then. It was great. So we're over <laughs> on the side of the road and we're both just standing there staring at the tire and, you know, do you know how to change a tire? And she's like, I don't know how to change a tire. And I'm like, I don't know how to change a tire. I'm like, it's hilarious. And we're just laughing at ourselves on the side of the road. And then a car, luckily, just pulls up right behind us, because again, no cell phones, can't call anybody. So these two guys just pull up behind us. They were like, typical, kind of just like, blue collar, probably Bon Jovi fans, like, you know, like in their 40s. They're like, they probably just worked at a garage. So get more credibility about changing the tire. So they, you know, do you need help? And yes, we do. We need help. Um, so they proceed to start changing the tire. Just very little small talk. They just kind of get down to business. And uh, she and I are like giggling because we're we're drunk. And um, just being silly and talking and stuff. And um, finally the guy just turns around and he said, "Um, are you laughing at me? And I said, no, we're not laughing at you. He goes, all right, because you can change your own fucking tire if you're laughing at me. We're like, no, we're just... We're stupid. <laughs> and we're, no, we don't know how to change tires, and we're sorry, and we're embarrassed, and it's fine, and it's, it just goes fine from there, and they change the tire. And we thank them, and then we get in our car. And um, Lexi's driving, and I'm in the passenger seat, and then they get in our car behind us. And 
we're just, you know, what's up? And they said, uh, we're out of gas. You have to take us to get gas. So we said, well, why don't we just, you know, we'll take the gas can. We'll go get you some gas. And the guy's like, we just changed your tire. You can't take us to get some gas. And that, you know, seemed fair enough. So we did, and we, we started to drive, and we're driving down the road, and we start to see a gas station. And the guy says, um, no, we want to go to our gas station in Newark. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Newark, or you guys get Newark, right? Like, <laughs> so we tried to talk to him about it, and the guy just didn't say anything terribly intimidating. He just took Lexi's ponytail and pulled it. And the other guy put his arm here, and he said, just take us to our gas station. So we started driving to Newark. And um, something to know about me is that I go into sort of like uber calm mode when things like this happen. It's some sort of combination of uh, denial and just sort of like, what's the next thing? What's the next thing? What's the next thing? I, I hear it's a good thing when people are dying. You're like, okay, now you can't use your legs anymore. You know? So apparently I'm going to be great at dying. But... <laughs> So we're in the car, and they just start, you know, talking. We're just making talk. So there's this thing where they're sort of physically touching us, but otherwise they're like, so what are you girls doing in the city tonight? I was like, well, I'm an actress, and uh, she's a singer, and we were out in the city tonight. They were like, really? Yeah, you're good? And I'm like, yeah, we're great. We're great, and we're going to be great, and you're going to hear about us. He goes, okay, so sing. And he just looks at my friend, and she's like, Am I blue? Am I blue? Ain't these tears in your eyes telling you? It's actually what she sang while being carjacked. Also, that's the best I've ever sang. So you guys... (laughs) I know it was still horrible. I'm just saying it could have been a lot worse. So you should be happy. So then the guy looks at me and he says, act. And I really didn't have anything prepared for a carjacking. And because it was the 80s, all I had was a Neil Simon monologue. Because that was all anybody did in the 80s. And especially if you're a woman. And it's oddly just only now age appropriate, the monologue that I did when this happened. But I did uh, something from Neil Simon's chapter two. Does any, do you guys know this at all? Yeah. So it's basically the scene where Marsh Mason is getting um, broken up with and she's fighting for herself and she says, you know, I'm wonderful and I am nuts about me and if you are stupid enough to throw someone sensational as me aside, then you don't deserve as good as you've got. <laughs> They seemed to like it. They didn't have any notes. <laughs> and so then we pulled into the gas station in Newark, and it was all dark and locked. It had obviously been abandoned, and they obviously knew it was an abandoned gas station. But they couldn't get in. They couldn't get into the gas station. The doors were locked. We got back in the car, and they said, you know, take us back to our car. So, okay, and we're still just kind of small-talking. And we're going back, and now we're coming back on the other side of the road. And the one guy starts to, he can't see his car. Like, his car would be on the other side of the road. And he can't see it. And he starts to freak out. And I'm just like, that's not where your car was. And he's like, no, my car's gone. My car got towed. God damn it. And I'm like, that's not where your car is. Your car was closer up towards the shell station, where we should have been. And he's like, no, no, no. And he starts just losing it. And then finally his car appears on the other side of the road. I said, there's your car. See, all we have to do is just cross the other side of the road. And he said, good. Because if my car got towed, I was going to fucking kill you. 
And I probably just talked more about Neil Simon then. <laughs> and um, so then they saw this motel and they decided to pull over. The motel was called the Peter Pan Motel. It's not there anymore, but when I was preparing for this story, I looked it up on TripAdvisor, and there was like a list. It was like the 10 filthiest motels in the United States. <laughs> and the one review, the guy said, I have slept under a bridge in Amsterdam and felt cleaner when I woke up in the morning. <laughs> so it's definitely like a pay-by-the-hour kind of a joint. So we pulled over to the Peter Pan. And they're having sort of a conversation about getting a room. I'm looking at Lexi, and she's not doing great. And I'm looking at him out, and she's like, what? So then the guy that is behind Lexi gets out of the car, and he comes around to the window, and he says, the other guy gave me a card. And that guy gives him a credit card. I'm looking at Lexi, and I'm motioning, like, we have to get him out. And Lexi's like, what? And then all of a sudden it just occurs to me, and I said, he can't use your credit card. They're going to ask him for ID. And he said, what? And I said, look, if, if he goes in there with your credit card, they're going to ask him for ID. They're just going to call the cops. <laughs> for some reason, this works. And he jumps out to get the card from the guy. I look at Lexi, and I'm like, drive. And she goes, what? And I'm like, mm. And I take the steering wheel. I take the shift, and I put it into drive. And then I take both of my hands, and I push down so hard on her leg that the car drives away. <laughs> and we drive away. <laughs> and, uh, and she kicked in eventually and she started driving I didn't do that the whole entire way and she kicked in but we got it and we were going and obviously I'm thankfully okay and nothing happened but the thing about this story as I'm like hustling and bustling through my daily life and struggling as a performer and an actress in this town and how hard it is was that there was never... One moment while that was happening where I thought it was over for me. There wasn't one second where I thought I was done or I should give up. I just kept taking the next step. And that's what I do in my daily life. And that's passion. Thank you.
This is Risk. This is Whelan Brothers behind me now, and we just heard from Linda Bailey Walsh. Hey, there's a new fascinating true crime podcast coming out from our friends over at Earwolf. It's called Stranglers. You've heard of the Boston Strangler. 13 women were gruesomely murdered between like 1962 and 1964. The crimes just changed Boston forever. The killings were random seeming. The city was terrified. Thousands of suspects were questioned. No one was ever convicted. Even now, 50 years later, we still don't really know who did it. And on Stranglers, you'll hear from the victims, detectives, and journalists close to the case meet the investigators still on the job. You'll even hear the voice of the alleged killer whose jailhouse confession raised more questions than it answered. It's an original audio investigation into the Boston Strangler. Subscribe to Stranglers in iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Also, are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? Posting your job in one place isn't enough to find quality candidates. If you want to find the perfect hire, you need to post your job on all the top job sites. And now you can with ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter already has 9 million resumes you can search through in their database. You can add multiple people to your account to make it the most efficient for your team to find the best hire. With ZipRecruiter.com, you can post your job to 100 plus job sites, including social media networks like Facebook and Twitter, all with a single click. ZipRecruiter is a search engine for finding and posting jobs. Find candidates in any city or industry nationwide. Just post once and watch your qualified candidates roll into ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. No juggling emails or calls to your office. Quickly screen candidates, rate them, and hire the right person fast. If you have any issue, ZipRecruiter's friendly and human support staff is ready to help. Find out why ZipRecruiter has been used by over 1 million businesses, as featured on Forbes, Wall Street Journal, Time Magazine, New York Times, TechCrunch, and CBS. ZipRecruiter's website shows trending career fields, cities, and searches, and right now, Risk listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash risk. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash risk. One more time, try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash risk. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear from the wonderful Mara Wiles, who is a writer and comedian in Denver, Colorado. That story she told will come from way back when we were in Denver last But before that, a story that was first shared the last time we were in Dallas, Texas, Pollo Corral got up and shared this story at our last Dallas show. And I thought, wow, I mean, it's just too packed. There's just too much going on for just 15 minutes live on stage. I I said, "I I really would love to record that as a radio-style story so that we have a little more time to let it breathe and go into even more detail. And damn, I am glad we did. Here he is now. This is Pollo Corral. And if you live anywhere near Dallas, you should look him up at loveinmotion.info. This is Pollo with a story we call Redemption.
I find myself being called into a meeting. It's a dark Saturday evening, and I know the news is not good. I'm called to meet at a park in Juarez, Mexico. That was our get-to place where I usually meet my contacts, and they asked me to come alone this time, which I had never been asked to do that before. I see their van pull up and I'm guided just by a hand gesture to walk towards him. At that moment, my contact, who I knew by the name of the Cuban, asked me to go ahead and sit in the front seat. He asked me for my cell phone and he asked me what happened. I knew exactly what he was talking about. He was talking about the last shipment of drugs that had gone missing. And now the bosses wanted to speak with me. Not a good thing. We had dropped the ball on our end and now I was headed to a meeting. I heard voices coming from the back seats and the voices were from another couple of guys that I did not have an acquaintance with. At that point, I'm asked to put a blindfold on and somebody tightens it for me. They asked me to put my head down and the van begins to move. No craziness, no violence, no words. All I know is that I'm headed to speak to the bosses to give an explanation for where the shipment might be. Now, keep in mind that this is a shipment that is valued in their eyes at approximately $700,000. There's a lot of fear going on. I know who these people are. I've worked with them for years and I know that they don't mess around. The error, now looking back at it, was on my end. We were doing great, but somebody introduced me to another group of folks and in my mind, I saw it as an opportunity to expand our business instead of sticking with those people who we had already worked with so well for so many years. And these people took advantage of that opportunity and they ripped off our shipment. So next thing you know, the van pulls in to a garage. I can hear the door squeaking up. I hear the door squeaking down as well. Next thing you know, my door has been open. I'm asked to keep my head down. And my hands at this point are handcuffed behind me. I'm on my knees, I hear doors sliding to what I can only imagine was one of those glass doors that you see in a patio heading from a garage. I hear voices, several voices, can't even tell you how many, at least five, perhaps upwards of ten. There's chaos, there are cuss words, there's some sort of euphoria and energy, and then I'm pulled into another room where it just goes silent. My heart is beating. I'm sweating, cold sweat, and I'm thinking the worst. And part of that is because I know exactly who I'm dealing with. I know that in a way I dropped the ball. 
Nobody's responsible for this except for me. What was just a few minutes seemed like hours of waiting in that room. The door is kicked open and I'm asked straight up, where's our shit? I don't know where it's at. I go on to explain the details that we had ventured out with a new group. I go on to explain that we had never tried to work with this group and that the shipment was apparently lost and that these folks weren't even returning my calls from earlier that day. You fucked with the wrong people, Poyo. In my mind, there was only one option of what was going to happen. At this point, these kind of people are not concerned with recuperating their money. It's not about the money. It's about you don't mess with us, period. It's a message that they send out to the people who work with them and anybody who might want to mess with them. It's just how the business goes. Being in it for so many years, the stories were common. Next thing you know, other voices rush into the room and I'm kicked in different parts of my body. I couldn't even stay in a position where I could block my head, which was one of my concerns just to protect my head. All I knew is that I was trying to tuck myself as if I were a child in a fetal position. Screams, cuss words, more kicks to the abdomen, the head, the legs, laughing, a kind of evil and cold laughter. This is what you get for fucking with us. I slow down my breathing, probably because I was about to pass out. And at that point, they stopped kicking. I heard one of the guys say, you want to feel my belt? It was almost like in slow motion that all my other senses were heightened and I could hear him pull that belt out of the loops of his pants. And next thing you know, I felt a cold whip on my back. It must have been the leather of the belt plus the buckle. And he just started to go at me like crazy, whipping my back, screaming, where is our shit? I couldn't even answer at that point. One of the guys who was in the room at that point said, stop, let's let him take a little break. Presumably, so they can come back and do it and so they wouldn't lose me that quickly. Hours went by. I can only assume that I passed out. I found myself on the floor, couldn't observe any blood but I felt so weak, I felt so desperate, so much fear. I grew up in El Paso, which is border town with Juarez. 
I was a pretty good kid, pretty good student, pretty good athlete growing up. And I remember that for my freshman year, my parents wanted what was best for me, right? So they decided to enroll me in a private all-guy Catholic school in El Paso, which was kind of the elite school for anybody who was anybody. It was there that I met people in my life, which led me to make some of the worst and most horrific decisions. As a freshman, I hung out with a group of friends who actually lived in Juarez, and there was something that I really liked about them, something about their lifestyle appealed to me, and it turns out that they're basically people with power and with a lot of money. So. I remember some of my friends who I was in my freshman year with, I remember seeing them being driven up to the school by their bodyguards in their bulletproof cars. This was their lifestyle and they came from families who historically didn't have such a good reputation, but because they had the wealth and the ability to be able to send their kids to the school, this is where they wanted their kids to go. So as my relationship grew with these individuals, I started to learn ways to make money and these ways to make money came from dealing drugs and it started by dealing a couple of dime bags here and after time of dealing dime bags, it went to selling pounds of pot and from selling pounds of pot, we started to connect with people who had been in this business for years. and. I got to a point to where I was really good at what I was doing and it wasn't about pounds of pot anymore, but it, it was about shipments of pot and years went by and I started to get deeper and deeper and people knew my work ethic and the work ethic was a good one and the money started to pour in more and more. When I turned 17, I remember having a conversation with my parents saying, I'm moving out and they said, where are you going? I said, well, business is pretty good and of course I never told them what kind of business I was in but since my dad had always been an entrepreneur I was doing some of the business that he had which is basically opening up car lots and since I had money coming in it was a good way for me to almost launder our money and it was a great and perfect front so my parents were actually really proud of me they said wow look what we raised an entrepreneur and he's doing excellent I remember that business got so good that it got to the point where I didn't know where to put the cash. I mean, I'm 17 years old, I move out of my home and I buy a home in cash, a tiny little home in cash in wars with one bedroom, but I remember paying $48,000 in cash for this tiny little home at 17 years old and the money was rolling in and the reputation was, was spreading out more and more of what services I could provide for this cartel in Juarez. It got to a point to where a little safe wasn't good enough anymore. I had to get creative and I remember looking at my closet doors in my bedroom one night. I carefully took one of the thin layers of wood out and that's where I would stash the packs of $20 bills that we would get. And it got to a point to where I didn't know how to spend the money. So what do you do? You start to invest it. You buy another home. You buy vehicles. Our next purchase was going to be an old helicopter. That's how my life as a dime bag drug dealer 
evolved after years of being involved in the drug business. After what could have been either minutes or hours of me being passed out, I come to, I start to observe to see what the damage is on my body, and I can't really tell. And then the voices come again, and they say, are you ready to speak? I don't respond at all, which is not a good thing because they take it as me being defiant. I get kicked again more voices come into the room and they say now you get the other type of treatment and this type of treatment winds up being electrical shocks one of the guys takes handcuff off of my hands and he stretches my arm out and he says point out your middle finger so I point out my middle finger and I feel him put a wire around my finger while two other guys are holding me the wire stays on my middle finger and he says, I want you to count. I'm not sure what he's asking me to count. I know it's not going to be good. While another guy goes to proceed to put the other end of the electrical cord into the socket. And he says, how many times? And I say four, he says, good job. He goes to do it again. I don't even remember how many times. All I know is that when I was asked how many times I got it wrong and that earned me another kicking. And the shocks continued until I passed out again. Next round, when I woke up, one of my hands was handcuffed to a metal desk that was apparently very close to the floor. I felt like I had a hangover. Bones in my body that I didn't know I had hurt. My vision was blurry, and my instinct to want to live was not strong at all. I got to a point to where I felt like the best thing was to just give up. What good could come out of this? And the story continued for days where a guy would come in, he would feed me a ramen noodle meal, he would allow me to pull my blindfold up, and he would say, this will never end. A couple of weeks into this, not only physical torture, but emotional, started to really drain on me. Ironically, I remember thinking to myself that I could get out of this. I remember thinking, I've got money, I've got some properties, I know the right people, I can get back on my feet if they just let me do one more deal. And looking back now, it's interesting how I wasn't really that broke and I wasn't really that fearful 
my instinct to survive was in a way very manipulative. I didn't get the seriousness of the hole I was in. They didn't want their money. They wanted to communicate. You don't fuck with us. A couple of weeks into being at the safe house in Juarez, they allowed me to make one phone call and I decided the people to call would be my family. They hadn't heard from me for weeks, but that wasn't an anomaly. I would often disappear for weeks in and weeks out on vacation or trips or just working and needed to be out of the loop. So my dad picked up the phone. He said, Pollo, your mom's been concerned about you. Where are you? And I said, news isn't good, dad. And they advised me not to give details. The guys who were holding me hostage advised me not to give details. Just the look in their face. They didn't even have to express with any kind of exactitude what they want. They just said, you know what you can say and what you can't say. So I said, there's a lot of money that's owed and we need to fix this. At that point, the phone that they had lent me was ripped out of my hand and they proceeded to tell my father that they would be in contact with him soon phone goes dead and I'm thinking what have I caused here this isn't affecting me only it's affecting my family now my decisions my selfishness my pride my arrogance my plan it's affecting deeper than I ever thought this could affect anybody turns out that they continue communications with my father and my father steps in to cover the debt in a way that I never thought anybody would want to do. My father winds up selling everything he owned, property, the home that my mother and him lived in, his retirement account, jewelry that had been in the family for years, businesses were signed over to people who they wanted the businesses signed over in. And even after all that, the full debt was never fully covered. But we got to a point to where these people were in a way satisfied. I remember one day when they came in and they said, you're going home. And I didn't believe it. You're going home in my eyes. And because of my experience with them meant something completely different. It meant probably being dug in a ditch with a bullet in the back of my head. My adrenaline kicked up again. My instinct for survival was still weak. I just wanted it to be over in a way. I almost saw it as good news. Almost 40 days into this. And I just couldn't live this way anymore. Literally like an animal tied up, being fed once a day, peeing in a milk gallon that had had the top cut out had not brushed my teeth, had not washed my face, had not taken a shower. I remember I got to one point to where I would look down on my nails and I wanted to cut my nails, I wanted to peel my nails. And something in my mind said, well, if I am gonna wind up dead somewhere, at least, and if they can identify my body, maybe the forensics people can identify the DNA in my nails. So I remember peeling all my nails I'm putting them in the pocket of my jeans. Just trippy things like that went through my head because I didn't know what the next breath would bring about. 
So they had told me that I was going home. They called me and they picked me up. I remember my legs being so weak that they had to hold me up. I had literally been sitting in squat position or laying down on the floor or on my knees. I got to the point about three weeks into this experience where I was so desperate. All I thought of doing was calling out to a higher power. My parents uh, for several years had been involved in a local church and I remember my mom speaking to me about church and even at times inviting me to church and I played the part when I needed to because I wanted to be that son who would make his mom smile or give her joy in that way and I had no true care concern or desire to be connected to any of it at all. Ironically though, in my deepest moment of life and the darkest situation I've ever lived in, I had tried everything I could physically try. Um, emotionally speaking, I tried to pull myself up from the bootstraps and say, you can do this, Poyo. In that darkness, in that brokenness, I was led to, what if there is something bigger than me? What if there is something out there that can help me? And I remember being on my knees and saying, God, if you do exist, which that concept of God was very vague and very distant. And I remember crying out and saying, God, if you do exist, I ask that you would either save me from this horrific situation because I can't live one more day like this, or I ask that you would let them take my life. I just want a closure one way or another. And it turns out that he was looking out for me. So we go back to this moment where they tell me that I'm going home and they help me stand up. And I remember being shoved into a car blindfold still on at this point I'm on the floor of the car and there's a gun shoved to the back of my head and they said this isn't over we're going to give you instructions on how we want you to do this we're going to take you to a corner we're going to push you out of the car and you need to count to 60 because they didn't want me to see the vehicles that they were in. And they said, well, we've got a follow car. So that follow car will make sure that you did count till 60. And just a heads up, Poyle, if you decide to try and be smart, that follow car will see that and they will pick you up again. So we're driving. I remember there are turns and there are straight shots and the minutes in the car with a cold gun pointed to the back of my head seem again like forever. We eventually stop. They hand me what was used in those days was a credit card that you would use in payphones in Mexico. So they said, here's a phone card, call whoever you want to call and have a nice life. So we came to a stop. I'm pushed out of the vehicle and all my brain can say is count slow. That's the only thing that I was concerned of because the threat of a car is following and they're going to make sure that you did count to the 60 seconds that we're telling you to. I, I, I did not want that to be misinterpreted in any way and I remember counting as slow as I could. Minutes must have gone by and I remember eventually pulling off the blindfold and I remember looking up and I had no idea where I had been dropped off. 
scary in a way, but at the same time adrenaline pumping, I knew that in a way, at least for that moment, I had been freed. I'm not captive anymore. My hand is not handcuffed to a desk. And I remember I'm still on my knees of how they had dropped me out and I look up and it's getting to be dark that evening and it's a little bit humid. It appeared that it had just rained. There are some puddles close around and I'm trying to look for something that I can identify. I'm trying to look for people who I might know and there's nobody there. So I remember that my next reaction is to try and stand up and to run. So I'm fearing now and I'm saying if I've got five seconds to live or five minutes, I need to run. And it was so weird because my legs would not respond to what my body was saying. So I remember seeing a couple, an elderly couple walking down the street where I had been dropped off. And I remember looking over to them, which they might've thought I was crazy and on drugs or just something trippy. Cause I remember looking at them and saying, where are we? Where are we? And I remember they looked at each other and they literally walked the other way without answering me. So I continued to walk, galloping a little bit, if you will. And I get to a corner and at the corner I see a payphone. I pull out the card that they had given me. I stick it in the payphone and I call one of the only numbers that I recollected, which was my dad's cell phone. And I say, dad, and he says, Poyo, I'm on my way. Tell me where you're at. And I look up and I see the street sign and I tell him the street sign. He said, we're not too far away. Give me 10 minutes. I'm shaking. I'm looking around. I'm thinking, am I being followed or am I truly free? So my dad pulls up in a white Chevy pickup. He rolls down the window and I remember him glancing and glancing and not saying a word. And I said, dad, it's me. It turns out that he did not recognize me. My beard had grown out. I must have lost 10, maybe 15 pounds. And when he hears my voice, he gets out of the truck, runs to me and just hugs me. And it must have been one of the most memorable hugs I've ever had in my entire life. I'm looking at this man who still at this point, I do not know has sacrificed everything to ransom his son who made these selfish, horrific decisions. And yet he was willing to give it all up for me. He says, let's go home. Next thing you know, we're riding in the truck and I'm just looking at him and I can't really even believe that it's real. I feel like I smoked some kind of weird shit and I feel like I'm in a slow motion dream and I'm thinking, am I really here or is this an illusion? And I remember looking over to my dad and just putting my hand on his shoulder and saying, thank you. Thank you for loving me well. Long story short, we wind up getting home. My family had already known that I was going to be released that night. So a couple of close family members were there. My mom had ordered my favorite meal, which was pepperoni pizza. And I remember being able to see my mom face to face for the first time in at least 40 days and just weeping tears running down my face and looking at her and apologizing, saying, sorry, mom, for the pain that I have put you through. My dad standing right next to her looked at me and said, our love for you 
is not tied to anything, it's unconditional. And for the first time ever, I think it really hit home. And it is in those minutes that I started to taste, perhaps for the first time ever, that the grace and love and unconditional acceptance that my parents were relaying to me was the love and unconditional acceptance that God relays to his creation as well. So I wind up in Dallas. It's been 15 years. My life as a drug dealer is far, far, far in the past. I've got a beautiful family. Life is not easy, but it is beautiful. And it turns out that even the darkest moments of my life were redeemed by somebody who was looking out for me the entire time. That is a story of redemption. jam I want to fuck to but not tonight uh there is zero mention of cum in my story um I'm a stand-up comic here in Denver uh so thank you my one fan uh so I'm going to talk about something that I um haven't really talked at this capacity in front of your crowd before so in 2012 I was watching a lot of friends like a lot of friends, like a lot, a lot of friends, guys. Uh, you know the gang, Monica, Phoebe, Rachel, Joey, Chandler, everyone's least favorite, Ross. <laughs> and before you scoff at me and say, oh, in the golden age of television, why waste your time? Just back the fuck off. I was going through something very intense and I needed something light. I didn't need Breaking Bad. I didn't need The Wire. I needed Ross struggling to put on leather pants. And if you don't know what the show Friends is, I invite you to crawl out from underneath your rock. Uh, My life had changed so drastically in only a short amount of months. I had been dealing with lupus and autoimmune disease since I was 24. But my lupus had decided to kick things up a notch And it started to change the way it worked with my body. And lupus is different for everybody, and I'll get into that a little bit more later. But my lupus, when I first got diagnosed, started kind of like a beginner jogger, you know? It's uncomfortable at first, and you deal with the chafing because you've got the right lotion. But my lupus finished like a marathon sprinter at the end and only stopping once it demolished the finish line and fell to the ground. My lupus had decided that it was done with the little game it was playing and we were gonna make it real. Only a month earlier, been told that a kidney transplant was more than certain in my future. Three weeks earlier, I was on the transplant list waiting for a donation. And then two weeks earlier, I had started emergency hemodialysis. Hemodialysis was something nobody wants to do. If you wanna do it, you're a crazy person. Uh, My doctor's plan was, uh, as he said to me in his 
eternally optimistic voice during a, another session at the doctor's with an unexplained pain or throbbing headache. He said to me, as he tried to root for me so many times before, but he couldn't spin this one when he said, Mara, we're going to try to squeak by on your kidneys as is until we find you a donor and try to keep squeaking by so you don't have to go on dialysis. Well, that plan fell apart one day when I had a bloody nose that didn't stop for about five hours. That's not normal. You should get that checked out. Uh, I went to the emergency room right away. They shoved a rhino rocket up my nose, which is a glorified tampon. And after they came back with my test results, the look on the people's faces that were working there can only be described as first responders to a horrible car accident. And they were amazed that anyone came out of that mangled mess. If I had waited any longer, I would have had a heart attack in the next 48 hours. So I was put on uh, dialysis right away. A port was put into my chest. And I had started spending three days of every week in the basement of an Inglewood Medical Center getting dialysis. Now, dialysis is a way to clean your blood and get the toxins out of your systems when your kidneys decide 27 years is enough. They're retiring. For me, that's not a normal age. Most people on dialysis are about 65. So every day I'd walk past people who looked like they had just given up. Because dialysis prolongs your life, but it doesn't make it any better, and it's extremely hard on your body. It's like you're charging a phone, and the battery never goes anymore, and you can't even play, you know, Angry Birds. So it's like, what's the point, you know? So that's where I was every day. And, you know, the only thing that was keeping me together was friends. I couldn't watch Judge Judy. I couldn't watch Maury. It's too depressing at that time of day. The, the lights were too much. And the laugh track of friends was just right. So when the nurse or the tech looked at my chart and they said, oh, so young, shook her head back and forth. I didn't have to hear that because I already was telling myself that all the time. So I needed to watch some people dance in a fucking fountain, okay? Get off my case. And when I was watching Friends, I did what we all do when we watch your favorite shows with an ensemble you love. You imagine who of your friends is a friend, and what friend are you? Now me, guys, I'm a Joey Phoebe Rachel, a dreamer with a heart of gold who's kind of flighty, and you know, you gotta take care of her. But every time I watched it, I always saw my friend Jess and Monica, the clear leader of all the friends, the neat freak with a heart of gold who could cook and who was freakishly strong. That was my friend Jess, except for my friend Jess was way better than Monica. Sorry, Courtney Cox. She was smarter and she worked with people and taught and she, she really understood how people worked and how to be a friend and be loyal. And she's better than Monica in all respects. But I think I kept watching it and thinking of her during this time because I needed her the most then. And she had just recently moved to L.A. around a year and a half before. Jess had been my friend. But our friendship really didn't become what it is today until we were in college. We both went to the University of Colorado at Boulder. And our freshman year, we lived in the same dorm together. And we developed a habit, like most kids do, when you have a friend, you latch on. And you want to make sure you keep that going. So we went to dinner together every single night. And I was excited to spend more time with her because in high school she was always beautiful and athletic and always had a cool boyfriend. And I was a yearbook editor, which didn't carry as much prestige as you would think, you know? And I looked up to her because she seemed so smart and logical when I could be an emotional mess. 
So I knocked on the door that night and she was deflated. Something I never saw because this girl's a spark plug. She said to me, he met somebody else. She was in his goddamn Bible study. She was talking about her high school boyfriend who went to CSU. I wrote him off as a fucking Jesus freak and gave her a hug. And I didn't know to help her because I'd never seen her that way. So the only thing I knew how to do was to make her laugh. That's what I could always do. So I put her on the bed. I threw some cheeses at her. And I popped in our old favorite, Send Me On My Way by Rusted Root. And her roommate, Lacey, grabbed a touch light. And we created our own very slow-moving strobe light. As we sang out loud and we danced around the Bed Bath & Beyond decorated dorm room and slipped on our shitty rugs and just laughed and sang and danced and forgot about this shitty guy who doesn't matter and won't matter. You're on for better things. We know that we're dancing now. As girls from Wisconsin and San Diego peeked into our open dorm room wondering what we were on. Nothing. We were just there for each other. And from that moment on, that kind of cemented who Jess was for me in my life. She understood me and she was always kind when I, when I needed extra help because I'm kind of a mess sometimes. She was always so put together. In fact, Jess was one of the first people I told when I got diagnosed with lupus. We used to spend time when we were college roommates talking about lupus because her mother has it and my older sister did as well. And people called lupus the cruel mystery because everyone who has it, and there's 1.5 million Americas with it, people don't understand what it does to you. People don't know what it is. You look healthy most of the time, but you're in an excruciating amount of pain arthritis, headaches, high blood pressure. My lupus attacks my kidneys. My sister's lupus attacks her blood cells. For everybody, it's different. Uh, I told her about it because she would understand. And she was one of those people that just didn't even ask a question about it. And when I later found out I was going to get a transplant, I met her and her husband, Bryce, and even when I was sick and I was still working and when I had horrible flare-ups, she made me an extra key and said, use it any time. Go take a nap at our apartment. It's right around the block. So on my lunch breaks, I'd spend my time smelling in my two best friends and feeling <laughs> horrible, but loved. And when I told her that I was going to have to get a transplant and things were happening so fast and I couldn't even imagine how this was happening to me, couldn't even say what I really needed, which was I needed a living donor, and I didn't know who to turn to. I couldn't even ask her. We were sitting at a, a busy pub, a brewery not far from here, as Jam Bam music played above us, and they ate their veggie burgers. I told them I was on the list and didn't say anything else. I said, it's going to be a wait, they say. We don't know. Could happen anytime people apply, I don't know. They keep the whole mystery a process to not get anyone's hopes up. And she just held my hand and said, you're stronger than this. And when I'm only a phone call away and we'll be back at Christmas time, you can do this. But she was gone and I missed my friend. And I didn't know at the time, but I was stronger than I thought. But I felt so ashamed of my disease. When you're young and sick, it feels so wrong. And people look at you and they don't get it. Why are you walking with a limp? You're fine. You're probably hungover. She's probably exaggerating all of her pain. 
I thought people would think I was a faker because my disease wasn't so easy to point out. I didn't want to ask anybody for help anymore because I felt like I was such a drain on them already. My parents were worried about me more than they ever were before. I was like, stop calling already. I'm fine. My boyfriend, I wanted him to leave me. I was worthless. I'm on dialysis. I'm like, I'm like a rag doll that someone just knocked off the fucking shelf. Not worth your time. I don't want to have sex. I'm hooked to a machine. I'm not even a real woman. I've got scars. It's gross. I didn't want to ask for help because I was ashamed. And I didn't tell a lot of people how sick I really was. And Jess was one of those people I could really talk to about it. So now I was on dialysis and I was watching Friends because Friends is like jello, you know? It goes down easy and I don't care if it's fake. They could never afford that goddamn apartment, you know? <laughs> it was comforting and it got me through. So I was on uh, hemodialysis for three months as they prepared me to start home dialysis, which they said is much more convenient. Their words, not mine. Uh, home dialysis means you get fluid delivered to you, big bags of fluid in boxes and boxes that you have to put on a machine at each night and hook to your dialysis tube. And then another tube goes into your toilet. And then um, you sleep like that as your body gets drained of all your goo. I was filled with shit and I felt like shit. And I didn't think I deserved shit. <sighs> And I had these people around me that cared. And I didn't know how to tell others, because I'm in comedy, I didn't want to seem weak on stage. You never want to seem weak on stage. You don't give away the microphone, you don't say sorry. And I felt sorry for even existing at this point in time. But it was after someone told me, you're strong, you can beat this. I finally found myself comfortable enough to start talking about my experiences and what I was going through. I wrote a blog, because you know, everybody does. And I told people, I'm really sick and I really need help. And at this point, I don't care who it comes from. If you can take that chance and donate a part of yourself to me, I know I'll forever be grateful. And I send it out to the Facebook world, thinking people would think, she's probably gonna ask for money next. I bet it's for a Kickstarter. But I was amazed by the response I had gotten. People, strangers I had never even met, sending me messages, offering their help, wanting to make me casseroles. I was blown away. And I started to not feel so ashamed anymore. And I felt strong from asking for help because from asking for that help, people showed up in droves to show that support. So I could go on a little bit longer and keep putting the tube into my stomach and into the toilet, making a great sleep soundtrack. Trust me, guys, uh, it's always nice hearing your own urine at 20 feet away, just dump into a bowl. Because being on the waiting list is like limbo if you're in renal failure. There's 120,000 people on the transplant list right now. And every 15 minutes, another person gets added. And every hour, probably 10 people die waiting, maybe more. It's not a fun thing because it, it involves people going through a lot of tests. You don't know who's doing it. They keep it a secret from you. There's no end in sight for a lot of this. And I knew people were going through it, my sister, my boyfriend, but I wasn't keeping my hopes up. 
I was dreading being on dialysis for four years, not having the energy to perform and do what I love. I kind of decided, you know, maybe I can pack it in, you know, be like a, a vlogger, a YouTube star. That's not what I wanted. But I kept a strong face and I tried my best to stay positive because I'm an eternal optimist, which means I'm constantly disappointed by people. So I tried to p- press on. Over Christmas, Jess came home, visiting from LA with Bryce. And, and, you know, it was like we were kids again. We missed them so much. We always talked about everything. You know, that night after we danced around the dorm room, we were women away from Littleton, Colorado, at CU Boulder. That's 45 minutes away. We had grown up together. We had washed out dumb guys like JT and Scott, and we were ready for real men named Bryce and Kevin, you know? And here she is now married to her Bryce in love, as she told me across the table. While I was in LA, I was taking all of the necessary tests and doctor's appointments to make sure I could be a donor for you. And we find out next week if I am a match. She had done this without even telling me. And she had talked about with her family and she said, this is what I want to do. I know Mara and this is going to make her light up again. (sighs) And like she'd always done before, Jess was taking care of me. It was like she was packing my lunch for a road trip yet again. But this time she had the forefront to, to do it in such a gentle way and a loving way to keep my hopes from not exploding too much. And I hugged her and I said, if I get anyone's body part, I want it to be yours. You're just so fucking smart. (laughs) On January 25th, uh, 2012, I'd been on dialysis for about seven months. I had moved to home dialysis. I was laying in my bed with my boyfriend next to me, talking about the day's events and the comedy scene drama. Next to my boxes of dialysis fluid in my tiny two-bedroom apartment I shared with my sister and her two chihuahuas when Jess called. I picked up the phone right away because I knew whatever the news was, I wanted to know it and I didn't want to hear it on a voicemail or call her back. I wanted it right now. So I picked up the phone and on the other end she said, hey Mara, are you ready to take care of my body part for the next 25 years? And I was like, what? You want me to be a surrogate? (laughs) No, Mara. Mara, focus. Mara, I know your brain's not thinking right because your body's literally filled with toxins, but I'm a match. I'm going to be your kidney donor. I know, it's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. You can clap. It's a gift. On March 8th, we had our surgery, and I remember watching Jess as she got wheeled away to the delivery room an hour before me. She's so tiny and so strong and wasn't scared. She said, I'll see you soon, and this better not hurt more than yours. It did. (laughs) It's a much more complicated surgery. But then we were great. The surgery went successful. I'm here today. I've never felt this good in my life. Before, the, before I felt great, but now I feel amazing. And Jess, I'm sure you're all wondering about her. She's doing great too. 
She had her first son a year and a week after our surgery on St. Patrick's Day. And he's my little lucky charm. I, I, I affectionately call him my spare. And... <laughs> just kidding around. He'll be old enough to make that choice for himself. <laughs> I think for me, what I learned from all of this, because life is going to throw things your way that you're not going to want to deal with, and it's going to be hard, and you're going to feel shame, because we all do, because we're humans, and we're weak, <laughs> and that's why we've got other people around to make us strong. And by asking for help, it doesn't make you silly or vulnerable or pathetic but it makes you capable to have anything happen. Because when you let people be there for you, that's the most life-saving thing you can have in your life. Thank you. Come shine the light on Come and set me Come shine the light on Send me these chains on me, won't let me be. You got the keys, come rescue me. These chains on me, won't let me be. You got the keys, come set me free. all for this week's episode folks we just heard from mara wiles who you can find at marawilescomic.com and this behind me now is from the soundtrack to the get down featuring nile rogers and the americanos and horizon guardiola don't forget you can join zappos rewards zappos.com's brand new loyalty program existing customers will get $15 in Zappos Rewards just for enrolling. Sign up today at zappos.com slash rewards and get free expedited shipping, points for rewards, and early access to sales. Join now at zappos.com slash rewards. We've got some amazing live shows coming up, folks. On December 14th, we are back in Brooklyn at the Bell House. Listen, if you live in New York City, come out 
to see us. Come out to see our Bell House show. There's nothing quite like it. Being there live and hearing the stories right from the horse's mouth when they're standing right there in front of you, there's just a certain special something about being there. So come on out and support us, New York City. Come and see us at the Bell House on December 14th. On December 15th, we're in Detroit. We return to Detroit on December 15th. And you know what? We are still taking pitches for that show. The theme is funky. That could mean funky like messed up or funky like awesome. Could be anything, really. Pitch us your stories, folks from Detroit at riskdeshow.com slash submissions. The very next day, December 16th, we're in Milwaukee. We're back in Milwaukee. The theme is eye-opening. Again, we're still taking pitches there. So pitch us, folks, from Milwaukee at riskdeshowcom slash submissions. On December 17th, we're back at the Bootleg Theater in Los Angeles. Holy cow, our November show in Los Angeles was so awesome, and we're looking forward to an awesome December show as well out at the Bootleg in Los Angeles. Now, something to be aware of for January is that we're coming on back to San Francisco. That's on the 27th. That's going to be a hell of a show. On February 17th, we're back in Carborough, North Carolina. The theme that night is what? And we're still taking bitches. So that's riskdeshowcom slash submissions. Everyone out there in North Carolina. And if you don't already know, we teach storytelling as well. Storytelling for the stage, storytelling for business. People have to do presentations or pitches or just chatting with a client over lunch and having to convince them of something. That's all at thestorystudio.org. We teach one-on-one, sessions over Skype or in person. We teach workshops for entire staffs of corporations or sometimes work with young people or communities in nonprofit programs. We've taught teachers and preachers and lawyers and songwriters how to tell stories. Check us out and consider whether or not we might be able to help you with some of your communication at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Come rescue me. participate in a politics of cynicism or do we participate in a politics of hope? I'm not talking about blind optimism here. The almost willful ignorance that thinks unemployment will go away if we just don't think about it. 
or healthcare crisis will solve itself if we just ignore it. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about something more substantial. It's the hope of slaves sitting around a fire singing freedom songs. The hope of immigrants setting out for distant shores. The hope of a young naval lieutenant bravely patrolling the Mekong Delta. The hope of a mill worker's son who dares to defy the odds. The hope of a skinny kid with a funny name who believes that America has a place for him too.